in 1009, about 90 years before the Crusaders arrived, soaked in blood from head to toe, to bring an end to their pilgrimage, and there found their new kingdom, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, was shattered to bits. Under orders from the Fatimid Caliph al-Hakim, the church was reduced to its foundations, which were then burnt. After the demolition, only a few walls too thick to destroy remained. The mob who'd gathered there to participate in the desecration then turned against the other Christian churches and shrines in the area. A convent was similarly torn down, and various cemeteries were looted. This was not an isolated incident either. Al-Hakim had various other churches and synagogues torn down, or rather, he allowed for the local Muslims to loot the places. This went hand in hand with other policies that directly targeted religious minorities in his kingdom, as well as a collection of other laws that were just outright bizarre. Christians across the known world reacted in outrage. There were calls for holy war and retribution against the Caliph, though it would be nearly a century before this pipe dream came to fruition. Still, the act of desecration and the terror of al-Hakim's rule became a cornerstone in the popular Christian imaginary of Muslim intolerance. In the West, al-Hakim is known to this day as the Mad Caliph. And two centuries after the fact, the historian William of Tyre would position this event as a direct cause for the Crusades that led to the founding of his homeland, the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Interestingly, William would settle on a most unexpected motivation behind the destruction. Calling on a commonly believed myth, he put forward the idea that the Caliph had taken such drastic action against Christianity because the Caliph's mother was herself a Christian, and Al-Hakim had acted to prove his Muslim piety. Why did Al-Hakim break with Muslim practice and take such violent action against the religious minorities in his kingdom? Was he really mad? Was William right? Did he do it to stave off slights against his Christian parentage? Find out on this episode of History of the Ultramare. Welcome to History of the Ultramare, Episode 1, The Order of God. The ruler by the Order of God, or in Arabic, Al-Hakim Biyamar Allah, was the sixth Fatimid Caliph. Now, the Fatimids were Shia Muslim, specifically Ismaili Shia Muslims. And if that doesn't really mean much to you, we're going to take a beat to go over the cliff notes. Now, I'll be skimming over centuries of religious and political infighting, schisms, compromises, and bloody civil war. We're going for the bullet points here, and even that's likely to be a lot. So, let's get into it. At the turn of the millennium, three rival caliphates stared at each other from across the Mediterranean. The Umayyad Caliphate in Cordoba, Spain, the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad, Iraq, and the Fatimid Caliphate in Cairo, Egypt. Their bitter feuds were rooted in political and religious disputes dating back centuries. Just decades after the death of the Prophet Muhammad and the founding of Islam, the first caliphate, the Rashidun Caliphate, erupted into a bloody civil war following the election of Muhammad's son-in-law, Ali, as caliph. And yes, you heard that right, election. The Rashidun Caliphate was not a hereditary dynasty. Instead, the community, or the powerful elements within it, chose their rulers. And Ali was a strong candidate, always had been. He was married to Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, remember that name, and he was the father of Muhammad's only male heirs. The way Ali and his supporters saw it, 
it was he and his sons who deserved to rule over the entirety of the abode of Islam. But that was not to be. Ali not only lost the civil war, but he lost his life, as he was assassinated in the middle of prayer, apparently. His son, Hassan, was named Caliph, but he only held on to the title for six months before giving it up in exchange for a guarantee that he would be left alive. In the end, the actual winner of the conflict was the governor of Syria, Muawiyah. He founded the second caliphate, the Umayyad Caliphate, which was a hereditary dynasty. He'd learned something. But the Umayyad victory had not fully quashed the port of Ali, and the first schism of Islam was solidified at this time, with the birth of the followers of Ali, the Shia to Ali, or just Shia. They splintered off from Sunni Islam, and to this day, they are at odds with other Muslims, who are majority Sunni. Cut off from possession of the caliphate, the Shia Muslims instead began appointing imams, spiritual leaders who possess a divine connection to God and unique abilities to interpret the Quran. After some centuries, the Umayyads themselves were overthrown, and a third caliphate came to power in the Middle East, the Abbasid Caliphate. They weren't Shia, but they were descendants of Muhammad's uncle, Abbas. Abbas, Abbasid, makes sense. They defeated the Umayyads and built the city of Baghdad in present-day Iraq to be their capital. But the Umayyads were not completely destroyed. They fled to the very ends of the earth, to the shores of the Atlantic Ocean in Iberia, and their caliphate established itself in the city of Cordoba in modern-day Spain. But still, back in the Middle East, the rise of the Abbasids had not put an end to the followers of Ali. However, there were new wrinkles in the one simple Sunni-Shia split. See, the Shia themselves had split. After the death of the sixth Imam, two different groups emerged supporting rival claimants. Most Shia supported the claim of the younger son, Musa. But there was a group that supported the line of the elder son, Ismaili. This second group would come to be known as Ismailis. And eventually, in northern Africa, an Ismaili Imam, Al-Hakim's great-great-great-grandfather, Al-Mahdi finally succeeded in establishing his own caliphate, a Shia caliphate. As their claim to holiness came from their connection to Muhammad, not by way of the Prophet's uncle Abbas, but via his daughter Fatima and her children with Ali, they became known as the Fatimids. Despite coming to power in northern Africa, the spiritual center for the Fatimids was in the Middle East, and they slowly began the move back home. It was Al-Hakim's grandfather, Al-Muiz, who took control of Egypt, where he built a new capital, which was named for the red planet Mars, known in Arabic as the Conqueror, Al-Qaeda, or in English, Cairo. They certainly did that name justice, and under Al-Hakim's father, Al-Aziz, their armies continued to expand westward into Palestine and Arabia. Around the turn of the millennium, it seemed like everything was coming up Fatimid. So it happened that Al-Hakim's reign began in 996, when his father Al-Aziz died after a period of illness. Al-Hakim had the news broken to him by his tutor, the Slavic eunuch Barjawan. At the time, the freshly minted caliph was a mere 11 years old. And eventually, it was this very same eunuch, Barjawan, who became the primary power behind the child-sized throne. He obtained the title of Wasita, basically the ruler second in command. A less powerful position than the traditional role of wazir or vizier. But the early Fatimids tended to avoid giving so much power to a subordinate. And although the previous caliph had named a vizier, when this man died, he did not fill the position again. Al-Hakim would never name a vizier, and always relied on wasitas to carry out administrative tasks. 
For some years, Barjawan then became the de facto leader of Fatimid Egypt, as he handled everything, and his pupil was still a child, so there was no need to actually consult the caliph about anything. However, as Al-Hakim grew up, he began to chafe more and more under his guardian's control. Barjawan had also begun a slip. He started to ignore his duties in favor of his musical hobbies. The eunuch would party with singers until the sun came up, and those who had need of his services would have to wait until the party was over. Worse yet, he increasingly shut his young master out of decision-making, at a time when the teenager clearly felt like he should begin to exert more direct control on matters. Sounds a bit like the setup for a Disney Channel original. He might be God's representative on Earth, but when it comes to curfew, it's his wasita who lays down the law. So obviously, the situation was untenable. And Al-Hakim decided the time had come for him to take the reins of government for himself. On April 7th of the year 1000, one month before his 15th birthday, the caliph summoned Barjawan to his palace. If Al-Hakim had any doubts that the eunuch had grown far too proud, they were likely dispelled when Barjawan arrived late to the gathering. When Barjawan finally arrived at the palace, he saluted the young caliph and took his customary position next to the royal parasol bearer, Radon. Suddenly, Al-Hakim made his way to the exit. That was a signal. Radon pulled out a dagger and stabbed Barjawan. The other servants also pulled out knives of their own and fell upon the poor eunuch as well. After killing Barjawan, they cut off his head and buried his body on the spot in a little garden of figs and grapes. I'm sure Disney can improve on the source material. Uh, you know, throw in a laugh track or something. Perhaps the bloody murder was necessary for Al-Hakim to truly seize control. Perhaps he feared that a bloodless dismissal would have left the eunuch with the opportunity to launch a coup or undermine the caliph in some way. But it seems the young Al-Hakim acquired a very particular taste that day. Of the dozen or so men who would follow in Barjawan's steps and become the caliph's wasita, nine would share his fate and be executed on the caliph's orders. This was not a risk limited to wasitas either. Many other high-ranking officials were as likely as not to end up executed during Al-Hakim's reign. One last note on the office of Wasida. Despite Al-Hakim's persecution of Christians, three of the men who held the role ended up being Christian. Like his father before him, Al-Hakim apparently didn't discriminate when it came to his bureaucrats. So what exactly was Al-Hakim's relationship with the religious minorities in his realm? Later Christians, when searching for examples of the persecution their co-religionists faced in the Holy Land, found plenty of examples in Al-Hakim's brutal measures. In many ways, he became their boogeyman, a dark figure that showed the depths of Muslim depravity. But towards the beginning of his career, Al-Hakim did not stand out as a particularly zealous ruler or anything. As I mentioned, Shia Islam had its roots in the Middle East, not Northern Africa. So the Fatimids, who were a numerical minority, were particularly respectful of not only other Muslim sects, but of Christians and Jews as protected minorities, or in Arabic, Dhimmi. Even though the Fatimid caliphs were religious figures within Ismaili Shia doctrine, in many ways, they also functioned as secular figures that moved between their various communities as benevolent guardians. At least, this was the ideal. And like I mentioned, it's not like this was an entirely altruistic stance. The Fatimids were surrounded by Christians and Sunni Muslims. At this point at least, many urban centers in Egypt and the Levant were still majority Christian. And those Muslims that did live in Egypt and the Levant were mostly Sunni. So, as a means of survival, the Fatimids had to be welcoming to other religions. One example of this is that Al-Hakim would, 
as other rulers before him, even attend the Christian baptism festival held on Easter. At this moment, many Muslims would join in as a procession led by the chief of police made its way from the Church of Michael to the river and back. But starting with the slate of reforms in 1004, this posture changed. It was from this point on that al-Hakim began to impose a number of restrictions that not only persecuted Christians, Jews, and Sunni Muslims, but even went against Shia tradition and the general tolerance of previous Fatimid rulers. The proclamations ranged from the mostly tolerable and in line with Muslim teachings, such as the banning of all beer and wine, to the strange, such as prohibiting women from leaving their homes and then outlawing the production of women's shoes to help enforce this prohibition, to the truly bizarre, such as the order to kill all the dogs in the kingdom. One source claims that this led to the slaughter of over 30,000 dogs. As for how these measures were taken by the public at large, here I have to defer to a quote from historian Paul E. Walker's Caliph of Cairo, in which he writes, quote, One more story from then needs to be related, if only to complete the record. According to this tale, in the year 1010, Al-Hakim gave the order that every open door should not be locked shut, every locked door must not be opened, and everything that is covered up should not be uncovered. In connection with the order of Al-Hakim that everything that is covered should not be uncovered, it is said that a drunken man set out one of the nights at the time, aiming to make his way from the place he was to his home. He did not quite get there, but instead passed out en route. A passerby happened upon him and took off his turban, unrolled it, and draped it over him. The man thus fell asleep, while covered over with the cloth of the turban. A policeman came along and poked him, asking, What are you? The man replied, I am something covered, and the commander of the believers, Al-Hakim, has ordered that covered things should not be uncovered. Thereupon, according to this account, the policeman was so taken aback by the man's words, he let him be. A story of this kind, even while it confirms the existence and the seriousness of Al-Hakim's policy, shows also that not only was compliance with the new regulations intermittent, but that it became the context for amusing anecdotes like these that subtly attempt to subvert it with humor. And more relevant for us, there were the measures that directly targeted the Vimy. The Easter festival he had once himself attended was banned, and the displaying of crosses was outlawed. Al-Hakim also ordered that all Christians were to wear a visible cross weighing at least five pounds. A resident of Egypt at the time, Yahya of Antioch, notes, with a dry wit, that the requirement to wear a cross inherently contradicted the ban on showing crosses. Well, there you go. Jews were similarly made to wear bells, and both communities had additional restrictions placed on them that no doubt made life that much more difficult, such as not being allowed to ride horses or only being allowed to dress in black. And then, of course there was the destruction of churches. The most famous of these was, of course, the Holy Sepulcher. But it was followed by the destruction of not only other churches, but synagogues as well. In many cases, the destruction was more of a government-sanctioned looting, as local Muslims were allowed to pillage and wreak havoc on the holy places. In Jerusalem, as I mentioned in the introduction, the destruction of the Holy Sepulcher was followed by attacks on many other holy places, and a lot of locals came away from these raids with a lot of loot. So why? Why break with tradition? Why persecute the Christians? Well, it's time we come to William of Tyre's reason, Al-Hakim's supposedly Christian parentage. As I mentioned, the Fatimids ruled over a multicultural society, 
and in this society, Christians were often entrusted with positions of power. Al-Hakim's father, Al-Aziz, had not only promoted Christians to the highest positions in government, but he'd taken a Christian woman as his concubine. Because of the fact that this Christian was a woman as well as a slave, we know almost nothing about her. The records simply call her Al-Azizia, or Aziz's lady, which is taken as a sign of respect, actually. It, it was really not a great time for women. Al-Azizia refused to convert to Islam, and there were all sorts of rumors over the power she held in the caliphate. Apparently, the caliph was devoted to her and showed both her and her religion special treatment. For example, somehow, by total coincidence, her two brothers, also Christians, were named as patriarchs or church heads in both Alexandria and Jerusalem, which were, of course, holy Christian cities and under Fatimid control. Now, as you might imagine, it is Azizia who is rumored to be the Mad Caliph's Christian mother. We know for a fact that she and Aziz had a daughter who survived into adulthood, Sit al-Mulk, who we'll be hearing from again. But was Al-Azizia also mother to the Nero of the Nile himself? Well, maybe. The main source that says yes are the records kept by the Coptic Church based in Egypt, and they might have had ulterior motives in linking Al-Hakim with Al-Azizia because she was not a Coptic Christian, she was a Melkite Christian. See, the Muslims aren't the only ones divided by theological dispute. No, 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 no. It's schisms all the way down. The feud between Coptic and Melkite Christianity goes back even farther than the Shia-Sunni split, back to the year 451 and the Council of Chalcedon. The argument of the day was over the nature of Christ. After all was said and done, the Council of Chalcedon settled on an official, orthodox position that Christ was one person in two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. However, many church leaders disagreed with this conclusion and maintained a monophysite, or one-nature position. Sidebar here, many of these churches still exist, and they prefer the term myophysite over monophysite, which they feel better encapsulates their viewpoint. To be frank, I don't exactly understand the arguments involved, and we're more focused on the impact of this religious split, not the particulars. Anyway, the Coptic Church in Egypt did not agree with the Creed of Chalcedon and broke away from the Orthodox at this point. This put them into conflict with not only the Orthodox Church, but the state behind that church, the Roman Empire. However, the Copts wouldn't have to put up with the Romans for too long. In the 600s, Egypt was conquered by the Arabs. Now all Christian churches in the region were subordinate to Islam. For the Copts in particular, this might have actually been preferable, perhaps because they were less closely aligned with the Romans, who were, after all, eternal enemies staring at Islam from behind their impenetrable Theodosian walls. Copts were often trusted with carrying out the day-to-day -day bureaucratic tasks of the Caliphate, being that the Rashidun or the Umayyad or now the Fatimid Caliphate. However, some Christians in the region were orthodox, and under Muslim rule, they became known as Melkites. The root of the word Melkite means regal or imperial, and refers to the fact that these Christians remained loyal to the Roman Empire. This was more of a geographical term. Melkites were basically what would come to be known as Greek Orthodox Christians, but in lands controlled by the Muslims. Now, Alazizia, the Christian woman who might have been Al-Hakim's mother, was possibly of Roman origin, and she was definitely a Melkite. 
by connecting Al-Hakim to the Melkites specifically. The Copts might have been trying to connect the persecution Christians faced under his rule with a Melkite origin, and in this way, undermine the influence of Melkite Christians. After all, what good are the Melkites if their kids are out here burning down churches? And so, well, I mean, it might have just been a story. Even if it wasn't true, maybe it did motivate Al-Hakim to feel like he had to prove he was a real Muslim. I can kind of imagine Freud evaluating the Caliph and drawing all sorts of conclusions. Careful, this is a man in psychosexual turmoil. He clearly projected his daddy issues onto his guardian, and when he killed his tutor, he became a man, and by consistently killing his administrators, he hopes to reclaim this manhood. What is more, his unresolved mommy issues led him to destroy the temples of her faith. You see the symbolism, of course. He feels impotent, so he murders his father and violates a representation of his mother, a classic Oedipus complex, or my name isn't Sigmund Freud. <laughs> so, armchair psychoanalysis aside, as tempting as it may be, is there another justification for Al-Hakim's actions? Well, there might be. See, Al-Hakim might have been caliph, but that doesn't mean he didn't face rivals for power. Al-Hakim risked becoming a puppet to powerful forces, military and political, within his realm. And he didn't need to look far for an example of this. Just next door, the once mighty Abbasid Caliph was, in the 11th century, just a puppet to the more powerful Buyid dynasty. And those of you who've read ahead know how the Fatimid story ends. But just in case you haven't, pretty soon the Fatimid Caliphs will no longer be in the driver's seat. They will instead be figureheads for powerful viziers. Remember I mentioned Al-Hakim's reliance on wasitas instead of viziers? Well, that might have been exactly the right call. The next few years of Fatimid history are full of puppet caliphs who struggle to do anything to curb the power of their administrators. In fact, towards the end of the 12th century, a Sunni vizier will finally put the powerless Fatimid caliphate out of its misery and establish a new dynasty loyal to the Abbasids. This man's name? You guessed it. Albert Ein... No, sorry. Salah Adin, Better known in the West as just Saladin. So, maybe Al-Hakim was just ahead of the curve. Maybe his constant murdering was less a sign of his bloodthirstiness and more a sign of the threats that surrounded him. What then of his treatment of Christians and other dhimmis? Well, this may have also been politically motivated. Part of a strategy to keep the rival religious minorities in check. Another explanation is that he may have been trying to appeal to public sentiment. Despite the Fatimids' attempts to keep their multicultural society in working order, the occasional riot did happen under their watch. One notable event concerns a group of merchants we'll be visiting again later on, the Amalfitans. Today, Amalfi is a relatively small town in southern Italy, but at the turn of the last millennium, it was a powerful duchy that used its trading context to assure its independence. We'll get into the Italian situation in a few episodes' time. But basically, there were, at this time, quite a few somewhat independent Italian city-states that made their living by trading throughout the Mediterranean. Among these were Venice, Pisa, Genoa, and Amalfi. They were the primary point of contact between Latin Europe and, well, everything else. They brought back expensive luxury goods from both Constantinople and the Arab world. While most of feudal Europe was making do with a barter economy, in places like Amalfi, on the other hand, Fatimid gold dinars were a common sight. In return, the Italians provided the East with things they just didn't have. Primarily, 
timber for shipbuilding, and slaves. It was actually this trade with the East that gave us the term slave from Slav. See, the Italians couldn't very well sell fellow Christians into bondage. No, 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 no. They preferred to hunt for victims among the pagan Slavic people of the Balkans. Our dearly departed Wasita, Barjoan, was likely a Slav himself, and he was not a rarity in Fatimid Egypt. It's clear to see why the Fatimid Caliphs valued their relationship with the Latin merchants who kept their palace stocked with eunuchs, but the average Joe Schmo on the street, he didn't see the foreigners as anything but troublemakers. In early 996, before the previous Caliph, Al-Aziz, died, a fleet of Caliphal warships went up in flames. Though this might have been an accident, the locals began to grow increasingly suspicious of a group of Amalfi traders. The situation eventually exploded into a riot which saw over a hundred Amalfitans lose their lives. Anger wasn't reserved for foreign Christians either. The rioters also targeted local Christians and even pillaged two local Christian churches. But Al-Aziz acted quickly and sent his vizier, the Christian Ibn Nasturis, to clean up the mess. He ended the violence, made good with the surviving Amalfitans, and captured 63 rioters. Here, Al-Aziz showed an old-world penchant for that special brand of sentencing that's at the time logical and at the same time batshit crazy. One-third of these folks were let go unharmed, one-third were beaten, and one-third were put to death. I think it was mostly random, too. With these actions, it was made abundantly clear that Al-Aziz would go to great lengths to ensure the safety of Christians in Egypt. Yet, within just a few months, Al-Aziz was dead. And it's been made pretty clear to us that the apple fell far from the tree, in this regard at least. Al-Hakim's persecution of Christians was probably not unpopular with many of his subjects. There are even some theories that he primarily targeted Melkites, who had been favored under Al-Aziz and his Melkite concubine. This could have served to ingratiate him not only with other Muslims, but with the Coptic community. So one explanation for his actions is that maybe he was trying to cultivate popularity. Who doesn't like a good raid on the infidels' churches? So, Al-Hakim may simply have been trying to shore up his defenses and cut down his enemies. We really just don't know. Unfortunately, none of our sources are particularly favorable to Al-Hakim, so we don't have his side of the story. We just have bits and pieces that more often than not see him as a cartoon villain, the Nero of the Nile, the Caligula of Cairo, an almost mythic figure. And maybe that's okay. The myth of the man is still incredibly relevant for us. It sets up the foundation for the narrative surrounding the birth of the Utremer. As long as the Franks could point to violent caliphs, they could justify their role as protectors of all Christians in the East. Al-Hakim also marks the beginning of the end for the Fatimids. He was more likely than not the richest man alive and one of the most powerful. But as I mentioned, his successors will slowly lose their grip on power. And at the end of the century, when the Latins come to town, Al-Hakim's great-grandson will not be calling the shots. The Crusaders will be dealing with the real power in Egypt, the Caliph's vizier. All of that will happen in the vacuum left when the Mad Caliph goes away. And when I say go away, I'm not being euphemistic. On February 13th, 1021, the Fatimid Caliphate awoke to find their Caliph and Imam was gone, vanished in the desert without a trace. The case remains open to this day. In Al-Hakim's absence... Things developed quite quickly, and power was seized by Al-Hakim's sister, Sita al-Mulk, who, let me remind you, was half-Christian, and very close to her Melkite patriarch uncles. In fact, she was so quick about it that some people think she may have had something to do with her brother's unfortunate disappearance. She'll put Al-Hakim's son on the throne as the new caliph and imam, but hold on to regent power for herself. 
Of course, Sitalmulk will work to repair relationships with the Christians, and particularly with the Byzantine emperor, who was the true head of the Melkite Christian faith. Yet, the Fatimid Caliph will never again be as powerful a figure as under al-Hakim. Though the Caliphate will technically survive the century, in many ways, its true power faded along with al-Hakim in 1021, in the hills outside Cairo. We will come back to Fatimid Egypt and see how things develop once the Order of God exits stage left. Before we do, we'll be taking a trip west. When the Fatimids made their move from western North Africa to Egypt, they left behind some puppet rulers in places like Tunisia and, crucially, in the island of Sicily, off the boot of Italy. As the Fatimids began to focus more and more on troubles to the east, these puppet rulers started developing goals of their own. You just can't find good proxies nowadays, I guess. This infighting got bad enough that Sicily passed from one puppet emirate to another and eventually just collapsed into petty states ready and willing to stab each other in the back. This chink in Muslim armor did not go unnoticed. And eventually, a merry band of mercenaries will come along to fully exploit the region's weaknesses and form the Kingdom of Sicily. What does all of this have to do with the Utremer? Well, not only do many Muslim historians of the era tend to view this conquest of Sicily as the opening salvos of the Crusades, but the man who will lead this Latin incursion into Muslim Sicily is none other than Robert the Fox of Oatville. He will start as a landless knight and eventually become Duke of Apulia, Calabria, and Sicily. Yet, his bastard firstborn son will inherit none of this. Instead, Bohemond of Oatville will use the techniques he learned growing up to fight Muslims in the Middle East on the First Crusade and earn his own title as Prince of Antioch. 